Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our Old Testament reading comes from 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of our Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with the castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of the irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the Ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the Ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom in the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our New Testament reading comes from John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. After all, Jesus was glorified. Did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him? Now the crowd that was with him When he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Good morning. So I did this on purpose. <laughs> Try to maintain some level of consistency and comfort. Um, it's, uh, it's really, it's very much a privilege for me to be doing this. Um, Sandy and I have been here at Rock Creek for two years, and it's been one of the sweetest gifts that the Lord has given us in our lives in this season that we've been in. Um, I feel very much like I'm getting up and speaking to family 
but I realize I'm speaking to family, a lot of which I don't know. So it's like one of those family reunions where you go and you know you're related to everyone and you really like everyone, even the ones that you haven't met yet. So that's a little bit what it's like this morning. So very grateful uh, to be here and to be bringing God's word. Um, so Eric's been talking about um, being in Godded recently. So I thought we'd look at this crazy passage from 2 Samuel, make some questionable and delightful theological leaps and uh, talk a little bit about Jesus and talk about the church. Um, but we're going to start in, in 2 Samuel, uh, a passage that can be a little bit confusing at the outset, but when you kind of get down into the heart of it and what's happening, I think it's quite beautiful and um, leads us into this idea uh, that Eric's been talking about, this engodedness. So uh, the scripture was read, and it's a, a fairly, fairly fascinating story, right? Um, David gathers uh, 30,000 men from Jerusalem to go down to the house of Abinadab and bring the Ark of the Covenant back up to Jerusalem. And we're at that place in Israel's history where, where David is um, sort of centralizing the, the, um, the power and the heart of the nation of Israel in the capital of Jerusalem. So the king uh, is a king that the people love. Um, there has been some degree of peace uh, David has been successful in his uh, military ventures, and now they're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of the living God, and bring it up and put it uh, in Jerusalem, which seems like a good and right thing to do. So we're told that in this process, they go down to the house of Abinadab. Uh, he's a priest, and that the Ark of God has been there for some 20 years sitting. So they go down to get the Ark, and... If you guys are like me, uh, when you kind of hap upon this story in scripture, it's a little bit odd, right? And perhaps makes us think some things that may not be um, totally accurate about, about God. Uh, because as they're taking the ark of God um, up to Jerusalem, we're told that they put it on a new cart. And that as that cart is moving along, uh, Ahio and Uzzah, the two sons of Abinadab, are there leading it. And as the oxen stumble in these deep routes, like ruts that would have been made, and the ark goes to fall off, uh, Uzzah does this thing that seems good, right? It seems like a good and right thing to do. He writes the ark of the covenant. He touches it. So you picture this. You've got 30,000 men there celebrating. The scripture says that, that they are worshiping in the fullness of worship, they are dancing and singing. There are instruments. It's a loud, sort of raucous affair. You can almost imagine, sorry, this is a terrible example, but imagine like a, a Super Bowl parade sort of thing, right? Where the people are, are celebrating their team. They are celebrating the nation of Israel. They're celebrating their king. And they're celebrating this ark that represents their God. Well, when Uzzah touches the ark to stay it, Scripture says that God's anger burned against him because of his irreverent act, and he was struck dead on the spot. And you can imagine all of the singing and all of the joy and all of the celebration goes. And David sees what happens, and David knows that God has struck him dead. And scripture says that David is angry, and he calls this place Perez Uzzah, the place where Uzzah was broken. And he says to himself, what on earth? If that caused God's anger to burn out, 
how can the ark come and be with me? I know my sin. Can the ark really come and be in Israel in the midst of their people? So he comes up with a plan. He says, I know what we'll do. We'll send it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, one of the most like wonderful backhanded gifts ever given, I think, in the history of the world. If it can't come to Jerusalem to rest with us, let's send it somewhere else and see how things fare there. So that's exactly what they do. They send it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and it's there for a couple of months. And David hears word that um, his entire family and everything he does is blessed because of the presence of the ark there. So David makes a new plan. But before we look at what he does next, a couple of things. What on earth happened with Uzzah? What was supposed to happen? When you look at that story, there are a few things that should kind of spark off for us that something's not quite right. We have to go back a little bit and set up some context. But the reason that the ark in the first place is at the house of Abinadab is because years ago, the ark had been captured by the Philistines during the um, kingship of Saul. And when they captured the ark, they took it to their cities. They took it to uh, the temple of Dagon, and terrible things end up happening. They move it to another city, and God um, brings down curses upon the city um, by way of, of rats and plagues and tumors. So the Philistines send it to another city. They send it to five cities in total. And in each place, the curse and power and judgment of God is upon the people. And eventually they say, we can't have this ark in our midst. We have to send it away. So they send it away on a cart with two cows pulling it. And they put the, they put the, the milking cows' calves back in the city because a milking cow normally will go back to its calf. But they beeline straight out and straight into Israel. And they end up in Beth Shemesh. And the people see the ark come, and they rejoice at first. But then scripture tells us this crazy thing. The ark is back with the people of Israel. The Philistines no longer have it. But scripture says that, that God struck down 50,000 people for looking upon the ark. Now, we don't get a lot more than that, but I, I think what is happening there is the ark of God becomes this sort of religious uh, relic, if you will. And they come to look upon it. And the ark of God is the throne of the living God. It is the mercy seat upon which, when enshrined, the Shekinah glory actually comes and sits in the midst of the, the cherubim's wings that sit over it. Well, after the people are, are struck dead, they take it to the house of Abinadab, the priest, and there it sits for 20 years. Well, David goes down to reclaim the ark, but we notice, and it, it should kind of go, oh, wait, that's not right. It's coming out on a cart, just like the Philistines treated it. And if you go back in Scripture and you look at, at Deuteronomy and you look at how the ark was supposed to be treated, there were very clear directions about what was to happen. There was a special group of Levites called the Kohathites. They, they were the ones who were supposed to actually carry the holy things of God. So the Aaronic priests would go into the temple and they would take down the curtain that separated the most holy place and they would lay that over the ark. And then they would take a big piece of leather and they'd place that over the curtain to make sure that the curtain didn't blow off. They would cover all of the things in the temple. 
And they would cover them so that, because Scripture says that the Kohathites were to go in, they were not to touch the most holy things, and they were not to look on the most holy things, lest they die. So now you've got David coming down, 30,000 people there celebrating, and out comes the ark. And the ark is on a cart, just like the Philistines had it. The Kohathites are not carrying it with the acacia poles covered. And Uzzah goes out to touch it. And it's not that God is being capricious and mean. It's that the holy God, who had given very clear commands, he touches the ark. And the unholy can't touch the holy. And God strikes him dead out of his irreverence. But here in this also, the great mercy that God is extending Mercy, the, the compassion that you, that you offer someone when judgment could happen. The great mercy of God that he didn't strike every man and woman dead that looked upon the ark. That he didn't strike David dead as he danced before the ark. Well, the ark is then taken to the home of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And there it sits. And Obed's family is wildly blessed. Uh, scripture says that generation upon generation upon generation is blessed because the presence of the living God had been in his home. And then we get this, uh, the, this second um, attempt to bring the ark up. And this time, things are different. Uh, if you look in 1 Chronicles 15, you get a fuller story. But David goes down, and this time he goes down with the consecrated priests ready to carry out their duty. They go down with singing, with harps, with shouting. They are worshiping, but they are also very well aware of what they are doing. In that three months where it had been sitting there, I think that it's likely that David went to the Holy Scriptures. He went back and started asking questions. He talked to the priests. He found out, how are we supposed to treat this throne of the living God? So they go down the second time, and the second time, the priests are consecrated and ready. There's still great worship and celebration, but even David himself is wearing priestly garments, the linen ephod. This is a holy act that is taking place. After six steps, he offers a bull and a fattened calf for the sins of the people because David is aware that the holiness of God is coming into a sinful people. And what happens? They worship and they bring the ark up to Jerusalem. So God's mercy is clear and evident, and I think David was fully aware that that had happened. So God's mercy is on, on display in a beautiful way. David's understanding and worship is on display in a beautiful way. And this is sort of one of those narratives that, that ties together one of the many threads that runs through Scripture. But one of the things that we'll find is God's desire to be in the midst of his people. From the very beginning of Scripture to the very end of Scripture, God desires to be in the midst of his people. I think that's part of the reason he extended such mercy to them as they carried it up the first time. So you see that thread there in that mercy, and you saw what happened when Uzzah touched the presence and glory of God. He was killed. Well, centuries later, um, we know what happens with the nation of Israel. Um, Israel, by the end of the Old Testament, by the end of the book of Malachi, has so, pro so profaned the name of the living God that he removes his presence from his people. He is gone. And there are 400 years of silence, 
And then we have the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. Um, Paul says, in him all the fullness of deity dwelled, fully man, fully God. The glory and presence has once again come into his people. John, in John 1, says, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled in our midst. The Shekinah glory that rested over the ark is now present in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, is now once again in the midst of his people that he so desires to be with. But what's wonderful, you look at what happens when people touch him. When you look through scripture, they're invited almost to touch him. There was a woman who, who had the, an, an issue of blood who her whole life in the midst of other people would have been characterized by walking through people calling out, unclean, unclean, I am unclean, do not touch me. She hears about Jesus. She hears the miracles he's been performing and she slides through a crowd of people not calling out unclean and she simply wants to touch his garment. She gets to his garment and touches it. He turns and in this just beautiful moment asks who was it and I think she's ready to get called out and with mercy and grace he says your faith has saved you go in peace there's another instance where there's a, a woman who um, scriptures call a, a sinner who the Pharisee um, at the home that this dinner is taking place looked at as a sinner she came to a, a meal that was taking place while that woman, the first one, simply touched his garment, this woman came, and, and when you think of a meal, uh, ancient Near Eastern meal, um, they didn't necessarily do it like in a closed-off living room or, or dining room, right? Sometimes they would have been outside, sometimes even outside of, of a home, so that people from the community could actually come and stand around and watch what was happening and hear and listen. Well, here, Jesus is reclining at this table with a group of people at a Pharisee's home, and he's stretched out, and there would have been a table in the middle, and his feet would have been out towards the back. And this woman comes with perfume. She reaches down and pours the perfume on his feet. It begins to anoint his feet. And she's so overcome that she begins to weep, and her tears fall onto his feet. And with her hair, she starts to wipe it. Well, you have this, this now interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee. The Pharisee saying, well, if this man were a prophet, he, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. And Jesus has a, a kind of lengthy interaction here, but he makes very clear, I know you, the Pharisee, and I know you as well. And to that woman who came and touched him, actually touched his flesh, what does he say? Your faith has saved you. You're forgiven. Go in peace the God who sought to dwell in the midst of his people. But not only, not only is it the people who reach out to him, now we have a God who reaches out in flesh and touches people. In the transfiguration, when Peter and James and John are on the mount with Jesus and Moses and Elijah show up, after the voice of God chastises them, they're all looking down, says that Jesus came and he touched them and raised them up and said, don't be afraid. So our God, 
who in his holiness and glory and splendor was right to take the life of Uzzah when he touched him. Now, enfleshed in Jesus Christ, when those touch him, he offers mercy and grace. And then after that, our Savior even allows unholy, sinful people to touch him. He allows evil people to take him, to take his body, to touch it, to strip him down, to beat him, and to nail him to a cross so that our sins might be forgiven. But this, again, is all in movement towards us so that he might come again into his people. After the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. And after he ascends, he sends the promised Holy Spirit that comes and indwells his children. Paul says, Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know that you as the church are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God? That we literally are indwelt by God himself, given, stone, given hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone that we are made new, new creations in Christ, that God demonstrated his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes us new. He makes us the church. He makes us a one-anothering people. So in the movement to be in the midst of his people, he comes and he indwells us. So when we look around, there is no mere mortal in this room, as Lewis says, we look into the eyes of people who were indwelt by the Spirit of God. God, once again, in the midst of his people. Part of the reason that I, I've been so, so grateful to be here is because I've watched what happens in a one-anothering community. This, this movement towards us by the Lord to come and indwell us movement towards, but it doesn't stop when it gets in us. The Spirit comes and indwells us and makes us alive, but it doesn't stop there. God says, I come in and make you new and alive and whole so that I can go out through you. When Eric talks about the one another in community, when, when you all talk about one another in community, getting to watch that in action, getting to watch the mercy and the goodness and the power and the love of Jesus be spread through us being indwelt by the Spirit out to one another. Um, just a few months after uh, Sandy and I started going here, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the community, the way that the community came around us and acted as little Christs to us, extending to us the mercy that we needed extending to us the grace we needed, praying for us when we didn't quite know how to pray, loving us as Christ loves. And that's the beauty of it, right? When we are indwelt by the Spirit, when we become temples of the living God, we then are given the call and the charge and the ability to reach out and spread that love and that grace. Marshall prayed this morning. There are some of us who are... are able to easily rejoice right now and praise God. Let us rejoice alongside one another. There's some of us who are also deeply hurt and who find it really hard to rejoice right now, who have things with our families that we don't know how to handle, 
things at work that we don't know what to do with, things in our own hearts that we're not quite sure how to handle. But the Lord doesn't leave us alone in that. He indwells us, and then he raises up our brothers and sisters to be little Christs to us, to do the good works that God created before time for us to do. And those good works at their very core are always loving one another as Christ has loved us. So I'm so privileged and so grateful to be a part of this community, this one anothering community, where we take seriously this idea of being little Christ to one another. What a privilege it is to serve our Lord in this place. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind and gracious. And I thank you that you desire to be in the midst of your people. Lord, will you, by the power of your spirit, uh, make us able to love, to serve, and to see others as you do. We give you all praise and thanks in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.